You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name is Amelia and today we have yet another awesome guest on the show for you. We have Linda Lay, who is a software developer. Welcome to the show, Linda. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. I don't know if this is going to be an easy question or not. What is your job? Oh, I'll do my best to answer that succinctly. So right now, I'm a full-stack software engineer in the web widget team at Zendesk. So primarily work with front-end and with JavaScript, and the company that I work for builds customer support and CRM software. That's what I do now, but um, I've had a lot of, I've worn a lot of different hats in my time. One of the many wonderful career changes in tech. Yeah, I'm another one of those. <laughs> so for those, I don't think we can assume that the people listening really know what back-end or front-end or full-stack would mean. Able to give us just that really flying brief introduction to tech, I guess. <laughs> easy. Yeah, so easy to do. So right now, the kind of things that I work on are pretty much like all the things that you see when you use a website. So I work on web applications and it's all to do with the interactive parts of a website that you use when you're like buying things or filling out forms. So it's really about what it looks like and how it behaves when you're yeah clicking around and trying to use it and trying to do something. Okay. So listeners, this is obviously something that we do, if not every day, then most days you'll interact with something on the internet. What kinds of problems do you have to solve within that space? Yeah, there's a lot of different and interesting considerations. So I suppose like, you know, there's a lot of sort of practical elements around like what device are you using it on? Are you using it on your computer? Are you using it on your phone? And what kind of phone or computer are you using it on? There's considerations around like what it looks like in terms of just the color and the styles and being given a design by a designer and trying to create something that represents that as much as possible. And then there's some like other really in- interesting elements. Like at the moment, I've been doing a lot of work around accessibility, which is you know about um, trying to make websites accessible for as many people as possible, particularly people who have disabilities. And that could be anyone with visual impairments who have mobility issues with using a mouse. If you've temporarily been injured and you're not able to use it, and you know really trying to like design things that work well, not just for people like me, but for lots of different people, and to really think about all sorts of different user needs. It sounds like quite a range of things to be thinking about. What are some of the things that you're doing with accessibility at the moment? Yeah, so I think like during COVID, accessibility in particular has become even more important because, you know, overnight almost everything moved entirely online and digital. And, you know, things like accessibility, like specifically to how usable a website is for people with disabilities, But at the same time, making things more accessible not only benefits disabled users, but also anyone who might have usability problems. Like if you're someone who's a little bit older, you might need things to be able to zoom in really well. If you're in a regional area that doesn't have great internet access, um, making things perform really well so that they can load quickly is a really important element of usability. So I think, you know, what I like about that is if you can make things better for like one group of people or on a really specific problem. Solving it usually means that you can also make things better for a lot of other people as well. And, you know, I think that's what's really satisfying. And because like front end, the space that I work on, 
I don't know who's going to be using it on the other end. So it could be almost everyone, anyone. So you're trying to make things as inclusive and accessible for as many people as possible, not just a really specific person in mind. Yep. We're not building an entire website just for one person. Yep. I mean, you can do that in your side projects, but I think if you're, you know, you want a lot of people to be able to use your website or you want a lot of people to, for it to be designed well and to work for a lot of people. And if you're doing that well, then that generally means that more people are going to want to use it. Definitely. One of the accessibility considerations that I really enjoyed one team having to think about is their product was targeted at young mums and therefore the product needed to be able to be used single-handedly assuming that like the other hand is being used which anytime you see someone the baby that they, they seem to somehow have four arms won't go into limb count but like you had to be able to do it sort of like not fully focused probably not having a huge amount of sleep and also like probably single-fingered and I thought that was a really great thing to think about like obviously if you can make something accessible to them it's going to be accessible to so many more people as well. Absolutely. Like how many times, particularly I think for women, have you used a phone and like not being able to do things single-handed, like being it with phones being so large in your hand, like having to try to juggle that and then dropping it or, you know, all sorts of like weird kind of like side effects. Like we can kind of joke about it, but at the same time, like they are like serious, like usability problems as well. And, you know, I think it's usually a reflection of the people who've designed it. Not to say that they do it maliciously, but it's to do with the fact that a lot of people designing these things might only be thinking about it or testing it on a very small subsection of people. And those things don't often um, get caught until much, much later in the process. And they're usually a lot harder and more expensive to fix. Yeah, we always like uh, fixing problems early and failing fast. Yeah. Just like uh, medicine, like prevention is the best way to solve a lot of these problems. That is a very good analogy, and I think we we can all understand that one. It's like 10% of the cost or something like that. Absolutely. Able to talk us through, say, what an average day at work might look like for you? Yeah, sure. So I wake up in the morning. I usually tend to wake up a little bit later. Um, A great part of my job, I guess, is that we generally have a lot of flexibility around our working hours. So there are some people in my team who are early risers and some people who tend to wake up a little bit later and work a little bit later. So I'm not a great morning person. So usually I tend to wake up for my first meeting, which is basically stand up. So it's basically just a quick meeting with my team to about 10, 15 minutes where we basically just talk about what we worked on the day before and what we might be working on today. And it's basically just a chance for us to quickly sync up and just um, have an idea of what everyone's doing. And if we need any help with things to basically have that forum really early on to be able to you know, talk about that. Immediately after that, we basically have a, another meeting called mobbing, which I really, really love. It's not necessarily a practice that every team does, but my team does in particular, um, where basically all of the developers will basically get together. And it's an opportunity where if you're encountering any particular issues from the day before or on anything that you work on, it's an opportunity to basically have every engineer in your team look at the same problem and give you some advice or, um, you know, you kind of work on it together. And it's a really great opportunity to get feedback. And if you're stuck on a particular thing, you have a really short sort of feedback or turnaround time to be able to, you know, unblock yourself or get some suggestions on how to do things. So it's extremely collaborative. And I'm really lucky that my team, we all really, really love it. And we use that, we pretty much use that entire time almost every day. 
Then after that, rest of my day is usually kind of a bit in flux. So it can usually involve team meetings. It may involve some extracurricular stuff at the company. If there's like a workshop or an event. If I'm working on a particular feature or some sort of task, I'll basically try to block out some time to work on that. But yeah, there's a lot of flexibility to basically be able to design the rest of my day, but also have some regular things in place to sort of signpost or catch up with people to make sure that things that are happening in progress are on track. Do you want to talk a little bit about working in sprints? Yeah, sure. So basically, it's all part of this idea of like agile methodologies where I think really you're just trying to basically chunk up work in a way where you basically have like specific cycles where you're able to kind of get a really good feedback loop. So the idea of a sprint is basically you sort of plan out your work for the next two weeks. At the beginning of a sprint, you basically get together as a team and you look at all of the things you could possibly work on and try to decide and prioritize what you're choosing to work on at that particular time. You'll usually get some input from other members of the team, including like your product manager, maybe your designer, anyone else who might have some considerations or things to keep in mind. And we'll basically just look at like what we have coming up, who's on staff, and just try to make sure that we're just chunking up work in a sustainable way and trying to plan it out so that we all have a sense of what we need to be working on and um, who's going to be doing what. That was beautiful. And I'm super curious about like this concept of mobbing. It sounds like a really interesting way of getting work moving kind of quickly. Yeah, it's really great because it's, I think it's like so completely the opposite of a lot of people's impressions of coding, particularly when it comes to like references that you might see in pop culture, where it's basically like some like hooded guy in a basement with no social skills in the corner, basically like typing furiously and basically just, I don't know, like writing code that works like first time out and, and is like basically just getting things to work like first time out. Mobbing is basically where you have everyone in the team working on the same problem. There's a lot of different ways to do it, but the idea is is that if you're working on a problem that involves like some version of code, you will have one person there who's got their hands on the keyboard and will basically be typing out code related to, I guess, the feature or the thing that you're trying to implement. But everyone else in the team is sort of actively contributing and offering suggestions. And you're basically having multiple sets of eyes on the problem. So it isn't just a matter of like one person's doing all the work and you're all observing. It's meant to be a really active process where people, you know, one person is coding, but there are also really great tools that allow more than one person to code at the same time. But you're really just trying to get multiple eyes on the problem and you're usually sort of um, switching it up so that, you know, one person might be coding for a certain period of time and then you switch and you kind of rotate and it kind of just gives an opportunity to continually have a fresh set of eyes. It's a really, really great way to basically um, catch things that maybe one person or one or two people may not foresee. It sounds a bit counterintuitive because sometimes people might think, oh, well, if you've got the entire team working on the same problem at the same time, doesn't that mean that they're all not working on something else? But usually it means that you just catch problems really quickly and you have multiple sets of eyes and people who can foresee things that you may not see then there. So ultimately, it means that you know, um, when you want to get things out to your customers, you've already had a lot of people who understand what you've done really, really well. So it means you can basically get things out more quickly because, yeah, they're already familiar and up to speed with what you've been doing. And I think it it is important to highlight how, for most careers, it is inaccurately represented in popular culture. Everything is inaccurately represented. But 
particularly software engineering, like it is not done by one person at all. Like I think Wordle may have been created by one person, but that's like the exception to the rule by far. You, For the majority of the websites that you interact with, you would be astonished how many people created that. Absolutely. I think part of the power of coding is that there are definitely things that you can do on your own and you can kind of like, you know, spend a, you know, a day or a few hours or a week or so and sort of like, you know, spin something up and be able to get that out. But most of the time when you're using like really, really complex applications, like there is absolutely no way that one person was responsible for all of that. And if it, they were, then chances are there's parts of it that aren't very good. But if you're working on something that is continually sort of updated and has new features and, you know, can do a lot of really complex like workflows and calculations and things like that, it's absolutely been a group effort, even if um, one person might have been the architect of it. Because I think tech is a very iterative process. And again, going back to sort of pop culture references, so much of the time, they seem to give the impression that a lot of these things emerge fully formed. A great idea came to a genius inventor one night and they stayed up all night coding it and they got it out and immediately everyone was basically saying like, shut up and take my money. It's a really great like fairy tale and it's a great story, but very rarely is that how it actually plays out. And there's a lot of like mythology and myth making in some of these tech stories, but you know, really like the boring but like most true situation is usually a lot of people, hardworking people getting together to actually solve a problem and to just basically keep chipping away at it and making it better over time to get to a good product. But we only see that final 10% and we think that that's basically, um, you know, how it emerged when most of the time there was about 90% that was discarded along the way. A lot of frustration, a lot of dead ends, a lot of like experimentation to eventually get to that thing that finally did work. And then the moment that it does work, it's euphoric and brilliant and, you know, a cause for celebration. But the reason why it feels so good is because it's few and far between. It's a lot of other work in between to get to that point. But at the same time, that process is part of what's really enjoyable. Yeah, I think probably if you were thinking about going into tech, you'd want to move away from that idea of I will create a thing, do the thing, and it will be finished and more like solving lots of different little problems that cumulatively will build up and make things better. I think that's absolutely true. I don't know, for myself personally, working on personal projects, that 5% is always the hardest thing to like get done. Like almost any task where like you're almost done, but just trying to do that final bit is really difficult. Most of the time, the bit kind of gets out is a result of like many different people getting it over the line. Definitely. Do you want to talk about, so I'm just thinking that it's quite challenging for people who are external to tech to really sort of see what goes on behind. Like it's kind of this black box and software comes out. You put in software engineers, you get out software. Are you able to talk a bit about maybe the flow of a piece of work? Feel free to say no. Yeah, I can do my best to capture it because I think more often than not, when you hear about a job on paper or you hear about it at university or high school or see it on, in like movies or TV, they're really abstracting quite far removed from what the day-to-day looks like, but it's still really hard to imagine it until you're actually there and can observe it. So usually like when it comes to something that you need to code, it's usually either going to be there's a system that exists already and we need to fix something that's there or we need to like add something else to enhance it or to allow it to do something else, or you're designing something completely from scratch. 
So usually you'll start with someone coming to you with either a problem or a need, whether it's we want to you know, add a shopping cart functionality to this website, or we need to add an additional form that allows people to, I don't know, change their date of birth or something like that. Someone will basically come to you saying, or, or you know, something on the website looks a little bit broken, like this should be on the left-hand side and now it's basically on the right and it's colored purple instead of yellow or something. So they'll come to you with a problem and basically explaining, I guess, like, what should be happening and how it's how it's currently happening. Or they'll basically say, we need this to exist and this is the system that we want to integrate with or this is the thing that we want to build from scratch. So you basically will usually get some sort of requirement. Your job initially is to basically just ask a lot of questions and actually really like understand what people actually want because people will come to you with a need, but trying to sort of express a business need or a problem in code is quite difficult. So a lot of your job is really just talking to people to really understand what that's supposed to look like. And, you know, the best way to really understand that problem is usually to have some concrete examples or references. So having designs to look at or having like something to reference or being able to like get an idea of what they think they may want and trying to create like a really basic version of it and present it back to them to say, is this on the right track? Is usually how that process will kickstart. And you'll basically keep extrapolating on that and try to like understand the requirements and try to foresee any particular issues that may pop up. You know, if there's a particular bug or some sort of scenario that they haven't mentioned that might occur. And you'll basically just go through that refinement process of trying to sort of implement the thing, get feedback from, you know, other developers or for the, the people who've asked for it in the first place. And you'll just kind of keep shipping away at it until you basically get it to the point where, you know, you can get it you know, into the hands of customers. I don't know if that really covers it, but like, I think that's basically kind of the, at least what the day-to-day is kind of looking like meetings, sort of throwing some things at a wall in code and trying to sort of see what sticks or what works when you do finally get something to work, going back to people or saying like, is this actually how it's supposed to work? Is this built well or written well? And if not, like, what would you like instead? I think that's a beautiful description. And hopefully listeners with that in mind, you can sort of see why it might take a while if you call up a company and complain about a thing that doesn't exist on their website why it might take time for that to then appear because a lot of people have to be involved and come up with the design. There's a lot of questions. So it's definitely not sounding like you spend all your time just coding, Linda. Definitely not. And if I was, then I probably wouldn't really enjoy my work as much as I do. What would you say some of the skills are that you need to be able to do your job well? Yeah. So I suppose the like the key things... The technical skills and knowledge that you need to have are usually a byproduct of these other skills that really will sort of determine whether or not you'll sort of have the drive or the willingness to sort of stick it out to get to that point. Again, you're not expected to sort of arrive fully formed knowing everything. It's really more about persistence, curiosity about how things work, a willingness to learn things and to just want to keep learning. You don't need to be like an amazingly fast learner. You don't need to be someone that can pick things up within a minute or so. It's really just about, you know, a willingness to sort of just like interrogate things and chip away at things. And the fact that people have different sort of learning styles and work styles and a good balance of basically people who kind of work quickly and can kind of like prototype really quickly and other people who think really deeply about problems and really interrogate stuff and really tease things out 
is usually how you arrive at better solutions. So again, just like knowing how you like to learn and work. And I would also say like, an important element of it is kind of vulnerability. It requires you to sort of expose your own ignorance, which is really, really uncomfortable. And again, pretty counterintuitive to a lot of jobs where it's the ethos is very much fake it till you make it. And I think sometimes Silicon Valley might have that reputation, but in terms of like your ability to learn and basically get from like being a someone who's vaguely interested in tech or being very junior and actually getting to the point where you are senior and teaching others, you realize that the people who are very senior, they don't know everything, but they know a lot of things. They're very smart switched on people. They don't feel defensive about saying that they don't know how something works if they genuinely don't understand how something works because they know that they've got the skills to learn it and they genuinely want to actually understand how it works. I guess the one thing I will also say as well is those things will basically help you get to sort of a point where you're in a good place in your career. But if you really want to stand out, having a really strong mixture of people skills, business skills, and technical skills is really important. I know people kind of emphasize sometimes one or two of those things, but I think having a good sort of generalist above average understanding of all of those things and like great people skills are really going to be the things that help you stand out. That was a beautiful description. And I love the idea of vulnerability as a skill because, well, I think it's important for life, but that's the only way that you're actually going to get to learn a lot of things is, and I I think one of the reasons that might be safer in tech than more traditional fields where more is known is because a lot of stuff just isn't known in tech because it's constantly changing. And so you just, you can't actually keep up. So it kind of has to become safe to say, oh, I didn't read the latest update. <laughs> Vulnerability unlocks a lot of things. It kind of unlocks the freedom to fail. It unlocks the ability to basically like say what maybe a lot of people are, are thinking, but no one else really has the courage to say. And being the person to kind of vocalize that, you'll usually realize that there's a lot of other people who feel the same way, but no one else really could say that. And it just makes people feel like they're in a sort of uh, environment of like safety where they can basically um, like say themselves that they don't know. And again, also be vulnerable as well, because it's extremely difficult to do. But I think for my, and I wouldn't say that I enjoy it, but I have also realized that the more I do it, like the more practice I actually get, the more confident I am doing it. So the first time is terrifying. And then the more and more that I've done it, I don't particularly like it, but it's a practice skill. That's such a funny idea of being confidently vulnerable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can you tell I've been reading a lot of Bernie Brown recently? Right. Okay. I was like, yeah, this has a certain, not aura, but vibe. There's something. <laughs> I got really existential during COVID and like very introspective and learning a lot more about like neuroscience and behavioral psychology and just the way in which we are wired as human beings to react to threat, fear, things that are uncomfortable, which I think is obviously a theme that's incredibly relevant and, you know, very relatable. So that was basically one of my coping mechanisms to basically go all the way deep down. Who are we really? (laughs) What is vulnerability? What is a value? What does it really mean to feel shame? (laughs) That's a different podcast. Yeah. So, okay, you're confidently working on confident vulnerability, which should be the next Brene Brown book title. How did you get this job? Like you mentioned your career changer, you mentioned it could be a bit of a puzzle 
what was your path, say, to high school, from high school for, to where you are now? Oh, my pathway. It wasn't really much a pathway as it was like a really zigzaggy, off the beaten track, not paved road kind of pathway into tech. I think I usually describe my career as like experimental, accidental, and eclectic in the sense that I tell them what I studied and then the thing that I did after that and then the thing I did after that. And it doesn't add up. Like there's no clear like, oh, studying this would naturally lead into this job. And then naturally after this job, you would do this and this. So that's kind of the way I like to preface it. And people are always really surprised, which I kind of take as a compliment because you can't, I guess it goes to show that you can't really make assumptions about you did this thing. Therefore, you can like naturally, this is the box that you've cut, like you've put yourself in or other people put yourself in. So I went to high school, didn't really know what I wanted to do. I really loved learning. I loved like a lot of different subjects. I loved the actual learning process, but the whole like structure of the education and assessment system, it was really hard for me to find motivation to want to sort of do that. And I found that quite restrictive, but I loved learning and understanding how things work. I walked away from high school, not really knowing what I wanted to do. So I chose like really broad double degree that had a lot of different like multidisciplinary areas of study. So I could sort of delay the inevitable and not really have to decide. So I did a arts degree and a commerce degree. So they're basically very broad. The widest. (laughs) Yeah, a very broad humanities degree and a very broad business degree. So within that, I did so many different things. I studied like politics and bioethics and semiotics and like macroeconomics, finance, marketing, all of these different things. And I walked out of uni not really, still not really knowing what I wanted to do. And I think in your 20s, like it's much easier to define yourself against what you don't want to do or what you don't want to be than it is to sort of what you want to do. And, you know, I think a lot of your 20s is really just trying to understand yourself better and kind of um, learning to sort of put yourself out there, like rather than sort of defining yourself in opposition to things, actually taking a stance against things once you know what's worth sort of like sticking your neck out for. And so much of the time, like in high school, you know, you're trying to conform, you're trying to keep your head down and just like not stick out too much. And then you realize like as an adult, you're constantly trying to distinguish yourself from other people. Like, you know, when you're applying for jobs or when you're doing things, you're trying to talk about like what makes you unique, what makes you different or, and it's really hard to pin that down. And I suppose like the key thing I always kind of point out is every job that I worked in after my degree, I didn't study or I hated or I failed. Like I failed at university, (laughs) which really kind of goes to show that like, I don't know, not having a plan of like how your life wants to turn out to be, but still ending up doing things that you really enjoy is kind of a bit of a shock or surprise. And I think, you know, eventually you kind of learn to sort of let go of a semblance of a plan if you're basically sticking by your convictions and taking the opportunities that come to you if they sound interesting to you and, you know, you've got the right people and support around you to, to manage that. So after my degree, I worked in accounting and finance. After that, I worked in digital marketing. And then I kind of started getting interested in like the digital space, which led me to doing a coding bootcamp. And that's ultimately what led me into tech. But it was basically like humanities and business degree, finance and accounting, marketing, and then software development. That is a beautiful, beautiful career journey. And I love that insight into the difference between like high school, your 20s and you have to conform. And then like now your CV has to stand out and there's one of like 300. (laughs) 
Yeah. Like, I think in your younger years, you feel like there's a lot of finality to the choices that you need to make. Like, you need to make the right decision to set you up on the right path, to lead you to the right job, to lead you to the thing that sort of keeps you on the plan that you're supposed to be on, even though the plan is this abstract, undefined term that actually has no, like, specific model and is pretty, like, actually usually a pretty damaging standard to hold yourself to that you kind of eventually realise, like, no one's there, like, enforcing that or telling you that, you know, you didn't follow the plan, therefore, like, you know, you're failing at life. Yes, there's no, I don't know, arbitrator of the plan standing there. Do you have any memory of, like, what little Linda wanted to do? Oh, little Linda was, like... 13 going on 30. Like, I, as a kid, I wanted to be, like, a lawyer. I don't know, like, what led me to that. I think it was just, like, it sounded, like, interesting and prestigious and, like, I could fight for, like, moral justice and things like that until I kind of learned that a lot of law is really about, like, research and, like, basically, like, you know, who has the most resources to come up with the most, like, persuasive precedent rather than sort of this very idealistic definition that I had. But yeah, I think when I was younger, like, I think there was always a really strong sense of social justice that was instilled in me because I was first generation Australian and my parents had come from East Timor. And I think really early on, I just really realized how I'd kind of won the genetic lottery to be born in a country like Australia, where women and girls get economic opportunities and education opportunities that aren't available to me. And I guess just if my parents hadn't come over to Australia, I'd just be a very different person and I think it's that kind of weird intersection of like privilege and identity of being like born in Australia but also not sort of conforming to sort of the white Australia monoculture as well and having this sort of like ambivalent relationship to the country that I was born in where I can really appreciate a lot of the really best elements of the life and the culture and the opportunities that I've been given and also I guess sort of the more problematic aspects of our culture and history and you know sort of reconciling that part of my identity. And I guess in in your case it's a really clear thing where you can think like if my parents didn't make this decision like who would I be and having that like being able to do thought experiments on the what ifs and who could have gone where and all that sort of stuff that's like a whole other thing. Yeah I think it's because like a lot of the time we often are uncomfortable with how much of the opportunities we're given were due to factors outside of our control. I think we like to think that, you know, we all got where we are through hard work and like no one gave me a silver spoon and, you know, everything that I did, I earned for myself. And I think that's obviously true. Like, you know, um, where you're at is a reflection of the effort that you put in. But at the same time, there's a lot of dimensions around like privilege and like, you know, where we happen to be born and the things that are just available to us because of that, that other people in the world don't receive, not because they're undeserving, but simply because of things that were completely out of their control and our control. And people are really uncomfortable with acknowledging that. Yeah. There's actually a whole science behind our discomfort with that. And on top of that, there's just like the role that luck plays. Like there's your genetic location, like there's where you happen to be born and all that sort of thing. And then there's also whether or not you happen to share an elevator with someone who's in a position of power and all these sort of like random factors too, which are just like very uncomfortable to think about how you might be successful because of just something completely random, like an algorithm being friendly to you one day. Absolutely. Or you happen to know the right person. And sometimes that's a mixture of like privilege or sometimes just a like opportune like meeting as well. And 
think I have a very sort of stoic perspective on things where I like to sort of like think about, I guess, like what are the things within my control? And I guess what are the things that aren't in terms of um, things either to let go or things to just feel grateful for and just to kind of think about your place in the world and to sort of step out of the the very sort of self-centered view that we all naturally have. Like we are all the center of our own universes and I think that's okay. But also I think it's important to sort of take a step back and really think about our place in the world and I guess how we want to use our time and use our privilege and basically just use the effort and the labor that we've got. You know, we've only got so much time. And for me, I guess like what I do both at work and outside of work it's really important that it's balanced and it's really important that I guess it's personally fulfilling, but it also has some other dimensions that help other people or don't actively cause harm. Yep. Very, very important. You have been doing a lot of reading, haven't you? Uh, (laughs) This was me pretty pre-pandemic as well, but I think it just exacerbated that on a massive, massive scale. Well, you're able to articulate it. That's the most important thing. Now I can. I'm slowly learning to like be human again and socialize and try to talk coherently and gather my thoughts in a semi-conscious way. What advice would you give, say, to young Linda? Probably like to stop being like so hard on myself, which it's very easy to say that as advice, but it's really difficult to believe that and put that into practice. I think, you know, life experience kind of teaches that to you, but I suppose like The main thing that I would have told myself is basically it's okay to not have a plan or to like not have it all figured out and to sort of stop putting pressure on yourself and comparing yourself to the people who do have it all figured out. You know, some people have a really clear sense of what they want to do, what they want to study, and I think that's fantastic. They go into university knowing exactly what they want to study and what they want to do when they come out of it. But for myself, I think I would probably just say like, you know, you're going to spend a lot of this time just like experimenting and like learning about what energizes you, what drains you and and the things that you enjoy learning about. And somewhere along the way, you'll kind of stitch together, I guess, what you like, what you're good at, what the world needs and what they'll pay you to do. And, you know, you'll eventually end up there. And I think most of the time, if you've got the right value set and work ethic and attitude, people will want to give you opportunities. And if you're willing to take them, that's also a really good way to attack life if you're not sure about things. And it can take a lot of bravery to be willing to take an opportunity if it's big or scary or exciting. Even exciting things can be scary. Yeah, it's hard to kind of bet on yourself like because that's kind of what it is. It's sort of like taking a gamble on yourself and believing that things will kind of work out. And I think a lot of the time it's a lot easier to believe in other people than it is to believe in yourself. And the advice that you would give other people and the ways in which you would comfort them are really the, the things that you would actually say to yourself. Yep. We know ourselves a little bit too well, I think, sometimes. I think so. <laughs> I completely neglected to ask, what is your favourite part about your job? <sighs> like, there's so many different ways to unpick it, but I suppose, like, for me, it's the scary part but also the exhilarating part of, like, you know, when I wake up, I have no idea, like, what the day will look like for me. Like sometimes I can come in with a plan, but things can come out of nowhere and or like a new technology or thing that I have to think about or learn about will come. And I think that's really exciting. The fact that there's so much like variety in what I do and that tech is so vast that no single person is ever going to learn everything. Like it is just impossible. And once you realize that all your other colleagues are in the same boat and understand that, 
you really realize like you have an opportunity to sort of like write your own ticket in terms of like being able to learn things that interest you and waking up and basically just having something different to kind of work on every day and just to kind of constantly be learning and tackling different things. But also the fact that like the problems that you're trying to solve or the things that you're trying to do are all done really collaboratively. So I have an opportunity to do things that are extremely personally fulfilling but it all kind of comes through the process of like collaboration and being part of something bigger than myself and being able to bring my own perspective and my learning and my energy, but apply it to something collaborative and arrive at something that I could not have done by myself. You make it sound pretty cool. It is pretty cool. I don't want to like sell it and say like, in an overly idealistic way to say that it's not that it's easy or that it won't be challenging and frustrating, But at the same time, I think being able to accomplish something that is difficult, when you do kind of crack that or you have that moment of understanding and you can connect the dots, it's euphoric. And then being able to teach it to other people and give them that moment too is incredibly satisfying. I think as a society, we sort of over-romanticize the idea of having an easy life. And I think a lot of personal joy comes from going through a challenge, even if it's You know, it doesn't have to be physical. It can be all sorts of challenges. And then coming out the other side and being like, I did the thing. And I think it's much more important to people than just having an easy street. I completely agree. And I think you also learn about like what are the things in life and work that should be easy or shouldn't be like a massive struggle or a slog in terms of like dealing with like toxic people or being in really unhealthy work situations or being pushed to burnout or like undue stress. Like you want to be in that kind of like comfort zone or discomfort, like the sweet spot between the comfort zone and discomfort zone where, you know, you're challenged and, you know, stretched at the right amount in a sustainable sort of way. But there's psychological safety and there's supportive people and, you know, you wake up like looking forward to the challenge and you know that it's going to be challenging, but you also know that you have the right people and support systems who want you to succeed and that you don't have to sort of expend a lot of that energy to dealing with that. And you can really focus on things that are actually just fulfilling and, you know, basically help you grow as a person and also help you like form like healthy relationships and, you know, a strong sense of self and the ability to recognize like those different situations and know when to take a stand and, you know, defend yourself because you you learn to pick your battles basically and the things that are important to you or the things that are morally right or wrong to you that you aren't willing to compromise versus like just when it makes sense to basically like to let things go. And that's also a really healthy, that's also a really healthy and important skill to learn. Yes, that's a very hard skill to learn. And I think it can be really hard as well to tell the difference between what is a toxic environment and like it, it takes practice and being in different environments to understand the difference between toxicity and being able to like get into a problem and solve it. Definitely. Have you got any advice for people who are considering a career change into tech? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the important thing to keep in mind, I suppose, is that there's lots of paths into tech depending on your preferences and your situation in life. So there's traditional paths and non-traditional paths in terms of like the ways in which you can learn. So going through university and doing study again, doing self-learning or somewhere in between where you you sort of take short courses and things like that. So I think the thing to keep in mind is your ability to come into tech is not solely just a matter of like whether or not you can afford to do so. I think like there are certainly paths that make it a little bit easier. So things like 
boot camps where they're a little bit more expensive, but you get a bit more of a learning environment and structure to do so. That's certainly one way to do it, but by no means is that the only way in. Um, I know a lot of people who are self-taught, people who went and did university, people who went and did boot camps and some, and others who sort of done jobs that sort of skirt on the edges and that kind of led them into self-study. I think the important thing is basically to, I don't know, I know people who've been able to succeed from all of these different entry points and some of them involved like studying full-time for a certain period, but that's by no means the only way of doing so. And there's a lot of great online resources or things on YouTube or free workshops and classes that you can go to that might take a little bit longer, but are definitely ways in which to do so. And also just to experiment before you kind of make that investment as well. Yeah. And I didn't do a tech degree, but I'm kind of assuming that the same experience that you had at university where you didn't necessarily do well or enjoy the subjects at uni, like the uni tech experience may not be reflective of the industrial tech experience would be what I'm trying to say. I think that's apt. I think there's definitely things that you can kind of learn. And I I suppose the kind of learner that I am, part of me wishes I had been able to sort of study computer science and software engineering at university. But at the same time, like there is up until a few years ago, there is no, like I never considered software engineering as something that I would actually do or make a living by. So all of that life experience, the other things that I did to get me to that point, I wouldn't have been able to arrive at that situation without having all of that experience. And at the same time, like, you know, in my arts degree, and my commerce degree, I studied so many interesting subjects that had nothing to do with getting a job that were purely just about wanting to learn about interesting things. And I think that's also um, an important aspect of education, like learning things because you enjoy learning about it because it's interesting and fun and doesn't have to lead to some sort of outcome or some sort of thing that you can point to, some sort of achievement. It can just purely be enjoying that process and enjoying learning about something interesting. And that 100% needs to be celebrated more. I know people like, like people like to bash on like arts degrees and humanities degrees and I will kind of acknowledge some of the limitations of like maybe how practical it is but at the same time I will definitely defend the, the transferable skills that it taught me and I guess just the values that it taught me around like wanting to learn about things and understand my place in the world without it necessarily having to lead to something that just benefited me in terms of a job or in terms of you know an outcome that benefited me. And I have no doubt that in some way it did help towards the other jobs as well because it all builds up definitely we sort of touched on one of the myths and misconceptions which is fairly common is just that pop culture completely misrepresents programming are there any other myths that you'd like to do a bit of myth busting on I suppose aside from just what the day-to-day actually looks like I think it's just this idea that tech is like benign or or objective or that you know the algorithm says it to be so therefore like we take it on face value basically tech is a reflection of the preferences the lived experience and the biases of the humans behind it sometimes intentionally sometimes unintentionally but it's this idea of like it's it reflects the people who were involved in building it and the things that they care about or considered or failed to consider And I think in the past few years, I think we've sort of started to understand some of the limitations around, you know, technology and just things that weren't really planned for or thought about in any great detail, mostly because the world is becoming increasingly diverse. It's moving increasingly online, but right now it is still dominated by a very 
specific set demographic of people and that isn't representative of the wider world out there. And if we want things to reflect the world out there, we need to basically think about who's involved and trying to bring them earlier into the process or getting them involved in the building of things rather than trying to fix these problems later on. Yep. And there's been some numerous beautiful examples of just complete, we'll call them faux pas with tech. And there's this whole podcast dedicated to dissecting those. So if, that, if that's an area that you're interested in, I think Linda and I can probably rustle up some resources and we can pop them in the show notes because as, as she's just said, tech is not benign. It's not this impartial force that just exists. Yeah. I was thinking about this early today and I think the thing is computers and tech on the one hand is incredibly complex but also like incredibly simple in the sense that building applications is hard and takes time, which is why we talk about these problems so thoroughly. Like if we're going to spend months or weeks building things, we want to try to shore up our understanding of things as much as possible before we start that process. On the other hand, like all computers are, they're just basically executing a series of steps that we humans tell them to do. So we tell a computer to do this thing first, do this thing first, do this thing first. And it will only do the exact things that we tell them to. And if we don't explicitly think about those problems or at least try to design and handle for them, you get these very weird quirks and side effects that happen because, again, all they're going to do is the things that they're told to think about and care about. And if you exclude things that involve dimensions of morality or inclusiveness or all of these other kind of things, then they're not going to be designed to cater for that or think about that or prioritize that. And if anything, amplify the exact opposite. Yep. And I'm sure at some point in your life, you have done that thing where you've interacted with the computer and it's, it's done technically what you told it to do, but that isn't actually really what you wanted it to do. And if it had been a human, it would have been able to interpret what you actually wanted. But computers are very literal. And if you ever want to see that in action, you can just give a small child like a little remote controlled uh, robot or something and it'll the child will tell off the robot because it's like, naughty robot, you, did, you didn't do what I told you to. Obviously, the robot did exactly what the child told it to. And it's sort of like that, except on a whole international scale, including things like artificial intelligence. Absolutely. And it's when we integrate it into like other things that have very, very like life or death or incredibly impactful decision-making processes, like when it comes to sort of the justice system or um, medicine or lots of other different things. Like you're playing with people's lives, their livelihood, their sense of safety, many different things like that. And things like Wordle are great. And, you know, if it breaks, like the worst thing that happens is that it goes down and uh, people don't have something to post on Twitter every day and Slack channels basically die down with activity. But I think examples like Theranos or like other really damaging sort of tech where, you know, it's prioritized, I guess, what the fantasy over like the real life implications, you know, I think they're the lessons that we're sort of slowly learning. And I think general public consciousness about, you know, the limitations is becoming a lot more prevalent. I think I was watching Media Watch the other day and I think they were talking about like most trusted brands and most distrusted brands and Facebook and a lot of these other tech companies were in the top 20 of distrusted brands in Australia, which I think is quite telling. There were a lot of the usual suspects and then I think there was a lot of 
big tech names there where we use them every day. I don't think people have stopped using them, but we're also very wary now and like have this uncomfortable relationship. But at the same time, they are very convenient tools that have also made our lives a lot easier. I, as a side thing, I'd be very interested in like how many people say they distrust, for example, Google, but then when they type in an address on Google Maps, like how much they trust that A, Google will take them the right way and B, that they'll get them there at that time. Because I reckon people trust Google Maps, but they don't trust Google. Yeah. It's a bit of cognitive dissonance. And like, that's the thing, like, I am guilty of it just as much. And again, these are the kind of the existential questions that I'm trying to grapple with. But because again, I don't think tech is inherently like evil um, in the way that like law and order will suggest. But at the same time, I think the people who are super idealistic about how it's absolutely a force for good and any kind of progress is good progress. I think there has to be some room for nuance and some room for like a more intelligent debate that really is trying to dissect these different dimensions. And I think people are slowly becoming more aware of, I guess, the fact that there is this kind of like uneasy, like amnesty or sort of like (laughs) amnesty that we need to arrive around. Like, you know, we have to make our peace with, I guess, what we're giving up and what we're getting from that sort of, uh, I say social contract, but um, I don't think a lot of these companies really have a, super strong social contract. <laughs> it feels like a, it's a, definitely a one-way relationship. We have some interesting times ahead and that's why we need more people of all sorts of different types in tech creating these things that shape our lives because we do not want the same cookie-cutter people doing it forever. So, sorry, just to start wrapping up, have you got a shout out for us, a virtual high five for someone or someone who you think are doing an awesome job? Yeah, um, definitely. There's a lot of like great initiatives out there that are really trying to get more underrepresented folks to get involved in the tech community or to learn more about tech, just to basically break through some misconceptions that you may have and to sort of shatter some myths around whether or not it's something for you. I think you know, it may not be for you, which isn't to say that like these are skills that everyone has to learn or that it's something that everyone will be interested in. But I think there are a lot of people who don't realize that this is something that they could be quite good at or be genuinely interested in. And that it's not without its limitations, but it's also a really great job and great industry with like interesting work, good benefits and a lot of like great opportunities to kind of learn. And I think it's really worthwhile just like validating those assumptions and finding like great safe environments to do so. So, um, you know, there are a lot of groups on meetup on meetup.com that are really targeting people from underrepresented groups that offer like workshops and panels to learn more about what the tech industry is like. There's also some great people to follow on Twitter, like Cassidy Williams or Chloe Condon, people who basically came into tech from non-traditional paths. Like Chloe Condon, I think had studied musical theater and now works as a developer advocate and has done some like, you know, really, really great work to really shatter some misconceptions about what a tr- she's probably the furthest from what a stereotypical coder would look like. And I mean that as the highest compliment possible. <laughs> <laughs> so shout out a uh, high five COVID safe high five to all the people who are running the meetups and I guess just sharing their stories publicly so that other people like can see that there's visibility of a range of people in tech and yeah. Yeah. The one thing I would like to add is for me, a lot of like going onto podcasts like this for me is really about like paying it forward. There's a lot of like panels of people who really inspired me along the way um, that made me think that this was something that I wanted to do and really gave me that encouragement. 
at a time when I wasn't really sure to really just push me in a, in a healthy way to give it a go. And then, you know, I ended up doing it and really falling in love with it. And I think, you know, all that sort of stuff really pays dividends. So like most of the time when I ask these people like how I can help them or repay them back, it's really just do it for the next person because there was the person who helped me when I was at that stage. And I think that's the the best parts of, I guess, this job and I guess like these ways into, into tech. Yep. Be visible, pay it forward. And then how to say, don't lift the ladder up from behind you. <laughs> Absolutely. There's so much room at the table. Like you're not, but yeah, like we need more people rather, rather than like more gatekeepers. Like there is certainly depressing shortage basically. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which we won't go into right now, but there's space and you don't need to like stab each other to stay at the table either. Um, that's another thing. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I think the, one of the best parts in tech is that we've done work to improve representation, but it's still not anywhere near as quickly as it needs to happen. But I do find because of that, people from underrepresented groups and allies are really good at banding together. And I think slowly that attitude and that sort of sense of inclusiveness is becoming the, more of the majority or the prevailing view. And what I really love is just that sort of sense of solidarity and people wanting to really help and support each other. Um, there's a really great network of advice, people wanting to help, to mentor, to guide, or just basically like give you encouragement on the days where you feel really low and you just need that sort of like shot of energy or shot of you know encouragement that you can't give yourself. Yeah, I think that probably can't be understated. There's and. It'll be good when we can go back to things in person again and actually see these people. I miss it so much. And with that, we have to wrap up. So thank you so much, Linda, for coming on the show. It has been absolutely delightful and very insightful. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Resets this year, that would be amazing. Uh, you can buy us a coffee, head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link, buy me a coffee, and you can support us with a one-off little coffee payment. Thanks so much for listening. You're a legend.